The Can He Do That podcast is sponsored by T. Rowe Price. Are you looking to learn a thing or two about getting your finances in order, saving, and investing? Then check out The Confident Wallet, a personal finance podcast series by T. Rowe Price and the Washington Post Brand Studio. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. So a couple days ago, we sat down with some Post reporters and asked them a question. If they had to bet, who would be the next person to leave the Trump administration? Oh, my goodness. (laughs) It's hard to say. Closest to the chopping block is Attorney General Jeff Sessions. There he is, a year into a cascade of abuse that doesn't seem to end. It seems like every day Jeff Sessions gets to come to work is a bit of a surprise. Mueller. Rod Rosenstein next. These are people who are the target of Trump's wrath. H.R. McMaster is potentially in the offing. He wants more and better brains uh, fighting for him on this. I think he has said he's staying on for now. But within the White House, he hasn't found that yet. And so there could be some shakeup there. I think you will continue to see a revolving door of his lawyers. Every day, you don't exactly know what's going to happen. I'm Martine Powers, and this is Can He Do That?, a podcast about the powers and limitations of the American presidency. And on this week's episode, we're talking about turnover in the Trump administration. Uh, Michael Flynn, KT McFarland, Sean Spicer. Just in the last couple days, since we asked that question of who could be the next to leave, two of those predictions ended up coming true. National Security Advisor H.R. McMaster and John Dowd, Trump's lead lawyer on the special counsel investigation, they're both resigning. But the steady flow of firings, resignations, and retirements at the White House... Reince Priebus, Anthony Scaramucci, Derek Harvey... ...has been going on practically since Trump's inauguration. Carl Icahn, Steve Bannon, Sebastian Gorka, Rich Higgins... And we have a question. When will the president finally settle on his A-team? And more importantly, what does it mean that he hasn't? But to get to those bigger questions, we want to start with one specific firing and what it tells us about whether there are limits to who Trump can target. Because some of those senior officials at risk of getting a classic Trump canning, they're being targeted because of their involvement with the Russia investigation. The most recent example, Andrew McCabe, former deputy director of the FBI. Andrew McCabe had been the target of the president's ire for months and months and months. That's Matt Zapatosky. He's a national security reporter for The Post. So Andrew McCabe is a longtime FBI official. Sort of most recently, he served as the deputy director, the number two person in the bureau, and as the acting director when James Comey was sort of famously fired as the director. I can tell you that I hold Director Comey in the absolute highest regard. I have the highest respect for his considerable abilities and his integrity, and it has been... And President Trump made it clear a while ago that he was not a fan of Andrew McCabe. Trump believes that he's privately a Clinton supporter and that he abused his power as part of the Russia investigation. And the Justice Department's inspector general had this report. Apparently, it concluded that McCabe had authorized a leak to the media about an investigation involving Hillary Clinton and that he tried to cover it up. The FBI recommended that McCabe be fired based on this report, but he disputed it and took a leave of absence to write out the problem until he could retire. So Trump wanted McCabe out, 
and McCabe was not going to step down. At that point, he kind of sort of went on leave. He didn't really have a position. He was technically an FBI employee, and he was racing towards this March 18th retirement date when he would just leave the Bureau and start collecting his retirement benefits. Um, That, of course, never happened. He was fired by Attorney General Jeff Sessions just about 26 hours before his retirement could have kicked in. Um, so, and he'll collect significantly less benefits. And that was intentional, right? Oh, yeah. So it was with an eye on, we need to do something. We can't just let this guy sort of ride into the sunset with these damaging findings against him. And it's not the president who technically fires Andrew McCabe, but he had made well known that he wanted him out. And then Attorney General Sessions fires Andrew McCabe. And Andrew McCabe's firing, a lot of people view it as, well, look, the president is trying to undermine the Russia investigation. And the fact that McCabe was fired highlights some dicey political and legal issues that make other people in the government pretty nervous. And it begs the question of whether Trump would dare to go even further and fire the one person at the head of the Russia investigation. And if he were to fire Robert Mueller, I think there would be a lot more movement towards people saying, well, this is obstruction of justice. It would just be so politically damaging. There's a lot of speculation that Trump could attempt to get rid of the special counsel appointed to investigate alleged collusion between Russia and members of the Trump campaign. And there's this very real can he do that question there. Can he fire this person who was appointed specifically to investigate him? Trump can fire him. There are some practical hurdles and there are probably some political hurdles that he would run into. The practical hurdles are there's a regulation that sort of governs the appointment of Robert Mueller that says he can only be fired for cause and and only be fired by the attorney general. In this case, that's actually the deputy attorney general, Rod Rosenstein, who's acting as the attorney general because Jeff Sessions, the, the actual attorney general, has recused himself from the case. President Trump, though, could sort of tear up that regulation. Also, he could fire Rod Rosenstein if Rod Rosenstein wasn't willing to do it. Politically, though, it would be really damaging for him to do that. There has been some movement on the Hill in the past towards passing legislation that would further protect Robert Mueller, that would maybe make it practically impossible for the president to do, though that hasn't really gained a lot of traction. And Matt points out that even if Trump fired Mueller, it's very likely that Congress would pass a law and essentially reappoint him. But What has happened is some significant congressional Republicans, Lindsey Graham is the one that comes to mind first, have come out and said, look, if President Trump does this, this is going to be the beginning of the end. I pledge to the American people as a Republican to make sure that Mr. Mueller can continue to do his job without any interference. Are you worried that the president is preparing to order the firing of Mueller? It sure looks that way from his tweets. Well, as I said before, if he tried to do that, that would be the beginning of the end of his presidency because we're a rule of law nation. And what Senator Graham means is potentially impeachment, though it's unclear whether there would be enough support in the House to actually make that a real possibility. So McCabe and Robert Mueller and Attorney General Jeff Sessions, those are the folks who's firing or potential firing is wrapped up in this bigger issue of the Russia investigation. And then there are all these other people that we're hearing about, senior officials that are resigning or thinking about resigning or getting pushed out or about to be straight up fired. And you start to get this feeling, this can't be normal. And it turns out that it's not normal. 
it's actually quite exceptional. As of March 19th, there were 31 individuals that have turned over. And of those, 14 resigned under pressure, 11 were promoted to other jobs, and six resigned voluntarily. And that's unusual. That's very unusual. Catherine Dunn Tempest is a non-resident senior fellow at the Brookings Institution and a senior research director for the White House Transition Project. I've actually been studying White House staff turnover since around 1995 or so. Not just outright departures, but also people who were promoted. Because the idea, what I'm trying to capture is the level of disruption. Catherine has kept extensive data on the arrivals and departures of all top-tier staff of every presidential administration going back to Reagan. And one thing that she noticed was that generally, there was usually not too much change in the administration in the first year or so, and then there would be an uptick toward the end of year two. And that was because a lot of close advisors were going to work on the campaign. There were general sort of patterns that you could see, and there was slight variation. There were highs and lows, but nothing that was off the charts. That was true until the one-year anniversary of Trump's inauguration. At year one, President Trump was at 34 percent turnover. And I'm still gathering the turnover rate within his administration, and he's added an additional 14 percent in just about two months. So cumulatively, we're at a turnover rate of 48 percent. And just for the sake of comparison, after two full years, President Obama's turnover rate was 24 percent. George W. Bush, after two full years, was at 33 percent. And again, Catherine's turnover rates for Obama and Bush Jr. were measured after two whole years. Now we're just 14 months into this current administration, and Trump's turnover rate is already a good bit higher than Bush's, and double Obama's. The only other president to come close to Trump's rate of churn is Reagan. Well, in the first year, the highest turnover was Ronald Reagan with 17 percent. After two full years, Ronald Reagan was at 57 percent, but President Trump right now is at 48, so he's nine away from that. So you can see that the level of Trump turnover in what I call the A-team, or the most senior level of staff, is extraordinary. It's not just high, it's extraordinarily high. So what do you think is going on in the White House? Like, why are all of these people moving through so quickly? Right. He claims to have hired the best, um, and he hired people that were loyal. He definitely put a premium on loyalty over experience. One of the risks of doing that is that if you don't have people with the requisite experience, they're not going to perform well. And so it may be performance that some of these individuals are being fired. It may be they spoke out of turn, and so President Trump deemed that to be disloyal, and so he fired them. Um, it's, It's not entirely clear, but this president definitely does not tolerate any sort of uh, performance that's deemed to be subpar, you're out. Couldn't you argue that there's a benefit to that, right? That, that this administration moves more nimbly than you know, maybe Obama or, or, or the younger Bush, and that um, they are more quick to kind of identify subpar performances and, and move fast to correct those issues. What would you say to that, that idea that, that this is actually the sign of, of a well-functioning White House? Well, I would say that, you know, looking back historically, there's always turnover in the first year. There are always missteps. So, you know, President Trump can say that this turnover is fine. It just means that I'm identifying people who are not performing well and rooting them out. But I would say, while some of that is okay, it's clearly good to root out the bad apples. But at the same time, you have to understand the costs of turnover. For instance, you're losing the expertise. You're losing all of the institutional memory that that person had. And you're losing all the personal contacts. And in Washington, D.C., personal contacts are sort of the coin of the realm. 
the contacts that you have with the media, with Capitol Hill staffers, with advocacy organizations, with executive branch agencies, you can't put a price tag on those. They're invaluable. And when someone leaves the White House, they can't readily pass those on to their successor. So by, by firing people so frequently, he's basically undercutting his ability to advance his agenda. What are the implications for federal agencies and people who work inside these agencies um, because of all of this change and, and kind of tumult at the top? Mm-hmm. Well, it creates a lot of instability and unpredictability. Typically what has happened over the course of the 20th, 20th century is that the White House has internalized expertise and control has moved from the cabinet departments into the White House. So many times these people who are out in the departments as Trump political appointees are receiving orders from the White House or receiving perhaps commands but cues about what to do, what to pursue, what to prioritize. And so if there's a lot of turnover in the White House, then that means the individuals that they've relied upon to get their instructions from or to get their duties from, now they have to, there's somebody new that they have to meet with, that they have to develop a rapport with. And it just, I think it makes their jobs more complicated. Um, having some sense of stability makes it easier for all of those appointees in the executive agencies. What is your prediction for the end of year two? I mean, is this rate of turnover going to keep going or has it kind of played itself out and and now that he's getting new folks in after year one, things might settle down? Right. Well, I'm sort of of two minds on the answer to that question. On the one hand, if you look historically back at my data, you'd see that there's a surge in year two and that all prior presidents, their their turnover rates jumped in year two, um, in part because year two is sort of a natural time for people to move on to other jobs. At the same time, because Trump's number the first year was 34% and so high and comparatively off the charts, you almost wonder there's going to be whether there's going to be kind of a regression to the mean and that it couldn't necessarily be that high again because that's just, that would be really crazy. Yeah, that would be really crazy. And yet, when has the specter of unexpectedness ever stopped Trump from doing anything? What I think is much more surprising than the number of people who've moved through the revolving door of the Trump administration is the way in which this soap opera has played out in public, uh, very much fueled by the president himself uh, through the tweets, through the kind of ritual public humiliation of these folks who are working for him. Mark Fisher is a senior editor here at The Post. He's also the co-author of the definitive biography on the president, Trump Revealed. And he'd be the first one to tell you, he's not surprised at all by the level of tumult and upheaval in the White House right now. And he makes this case that this all hails back to The Apprentice and the reality show persona of Donald Trump. Because this is what we knew we were getting, right? The, The Trump who yells, you're fired who demonstrates that he's a tough boss, who can quickly identify the keepers and the duds. Have you watched The Apprentice since it was actually on television live, or have you gone back and, you know, ever since he's become president? To... I, I had never seen it in its first iteration when it was actually live on TV, but in the course of writing the biography of Trump, I went back and watched them all, which was very painful. But it did reveal a lot about how he operates, how he sees himself as a showman, how he wants people to behave around him. 
What was your personal reaction to seeing some of these most high-profile firings? Like maybe, I guess I'm thinking of Secretary of State Tillerson, right? You know, we all heard he found out that he was fired from a tweet. And Tillerson's press conference afterward, as well as uh, President Trump's statement, were also, I think, maybe in some ways kind of painful to watch. What did you think about that? Those were classic Donald Trump moves. So Rex Tillerson fired via tweet, told about the potential firing while he's on the can. Chief of Staff John Kelly told reporters that he called Tillerson to give him a heads up and mentioned, bizarrely, that Tillerson was in the bathroom during the call. James Comey sacked seeing a headline on cable news. While he was speaking to FBI agents in Los Angeles, while Comey was in that meeting, a letter from the president was hand-delivered to FBI headquarters in Washington. Reince Priebus being sacked in one of the most humiliating ways possible, it's almost like out of a movie where he's climbed into the, uh, the black SUV coming off Air Force One with a bunch of other officials, and then those other officials suddenly get out of the car, and the car carrying just Reince Priebus peels away from the motorcade, uh, and that's the way he literally leaves the, uh, the procession of power. I don't think anybody thought that it was going to end in this, in this torrent of, of profanity, obscenity, and humiliation. I mean, you, you couldn't make this stuff up. And yet that is the kind of drama that Donald Trump loves to stage. And when he was doing The Apprentice and when he was appearing on The Howard Stern Show, all of these previous chapters of his showbiz career, he was thinking of ways to heighten the drama. And so these firings are very much a part of that. It's the idea that he's showing who's boss. I want to ask about this idea that Donald Trump is moving more quickly in a good way. Do you think that that's actually the case here, that the fact that all of these firings are happening in such swift succession is a sign of being more nimble than previous presidents? I don't think it's a question of being more nimble. It's a question of being willing to uh, act uh, without the planning and forethought uh, that are generally associated with a government bureaucracy, a very cumbersome, uh, sprawling kind of decision-making process. Uh, Donald Trump has always taken great pride in doing things impulsively. I, I once asked him er, before he took office, how are you going to uh, bone up on all of the issues that come before a president from out of nowhere that you really have to know about in order to make decisions? And he said, no, no, I'm not going to do any of that. And I said, well, how are you going to come to decisions on these things? And he said, I'll have people come in. They'll talk to me for 30 seconds, and I'll know in my gut what to do. And he genuinely, deeply believes that he has the instinct and the capacity to make those decisions very quickly. We've seen that again and again with firings and with hirings. It's all about how do I win the day, stay at the center of attention. It doesn't really matter to him what the outcome is or what position is taken. He likes to be involved in those fights and he likes to show that he can destroy people. The, you kind of make the argument in your story, right, that that perception of Donald Trump as the ultimate truth teller, um, that in some ways that's a little bit of a, of a facade, right? That in a lot of cases, he's not actually sitting down face to face with the person that he hired and saying, look, I'm going to have to fire you, that he passes it off to other people or lets it unfold at arm's distance. What do you think about that? 
totally. I mean, he, he, a lot of this is really the show, and this has been true throughout his career. I talked to several of his uh, early executives at the Trump Organization who said he hated to fire people. He wouldn't even do it. He would, uh, if it had to be done, he would ask uh, one of his trusted uh, deputies to uh, take care of that for him. And that has remained true throughout his career. He does not like confrontations in person. And so these public humiliations, they're part of that show. Uh, but privately, when it comes to actually standing eye to eye with someone, he's not the guy to do the dirty work. He leaves that to others. So how does this play out for the remaining two and a half years of Trump's administration? Is there anyone who's safe from these firings? And for those that survive, how do they do it? Uh, there's a phenomenon that a lot of people worked for him for many years talk about called the last guy in the room phenomenon. Basically, if you stay in the office with Donald Trump and outlast the others who disagree with you, you'll probably be able to persuade him to give you to, to go your way on whatever the deal is, whatever the contract is. Uh, and that's something that a lot of people around him have learned over the years, and it keeps them coming back for more because they find that they can kind of shape him in ways that uh, make them feel good and get uh, what they want accomplished. Do you see an endpoint for his enthusiasm for this kind of drama, at least when it comes to the to the sort of constant flow of firings. Sure. The, the idea that, uh, as Kellyanne Conway keeps saying, he's uh, settling on his team, the right team and all of that, that's just nonsense. Uh, what Donald Trump is doing is uh, producing the next episode of the show. And so you'll see this constant uh, change in the men around him, not so much in the women. Uh, what he's always done is had as his most trusted and valuable staff staffers, a very small group, sometimes only one or two women who he trusts with everything. Uh, and whether that's his daughter or Hope Hicks or Kellyanne Conway or Sarah Sa uh, Sanders, th these are people who uh, will be the survivors in the end. Uh, but the guys who he sees more as a challenge to himself, uh, they're the ones who you'll just see moving through at this absurd pace. Why is there a difference between the men and the women and on his staff? This has been the way he's always worked. He has, uh, I think, always felt that men pose more of a direct challenge to his authority and a more competition, uh, and therefore he is uh, less willing to let them in all the way and also more willing to get rid of them uh, in, uh, in kind of a spur-of-the-moment basis, uh, whereas the women who he comes to trust, who are loyal to him, uh, have throughout his career stayed with him for decades on end. So for the insiders who know how to navigate Trump and can weather the storm, the turnover is an opportunity. But for those who don't or can't adapt to Trump, it's a totally different story. Well, what our White House reporters are, are finding when they talk to a lot of the people who've been in the White House from the beginning uh, is a tremendous sense of frustration, a sense of being overwhelmed by the uh, constant crises, by the, uh, just the drama, the soap opera that goes on day to day, week to week. All this churn and chaos is not good for the federal government. Mark, Matt, and Catherine all agreed the steady flow of ins and outs creates uncertainty and confusion that's devastating for productivity and for morale. But if there's one thing that we know about Trump, it's that he thrives on unpredictability. And if anything's going to get done, 
his staff is going to have to adapt to him, not the other way around. Well, and Trump has always relied on that for, for, for many years. He has almost superhuman energy. He, he sleeps very little. Uh, he does nothing but work uh, and watch TV, of course. Uh, and so he is, he knows he's going to outlast all these other people. And this has been true in his business and it's true now in the White House. He's not about to change, uh, but at least at some level he understands uh, what he's doing and he understands why he's doing it. He's doing it so that he stays at the center of attention. Uh, and others around him who get that and really understand it can work with it. Those who don't understand it and react to him as if he's just another Washington politician and that he really believes what he's saying and all of that stuff, uh, they, they're the ones who end up as roadkill. Thanks for listening to Can He Do That from The Washington Post. If you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. Check out previous episodes at WashingtonPost.com slash podcasts, or find us anywhere else that you listen. Can He Do That is produced by Carol Alderman, with design help from Kat Rudell-Brooks, logo art from Lorraine Boglio, and original music by Ted Muldoon. I'm the host, Martine Powers, filling in for Allison Michaels while she's out on parental leave. Special thanks to Matt Zapatowski, Mark Fisher, and Catherine Dunn-Tempest for help with this episode. do that, you should check out some of our other great podcasts, like Retropod, a daily show for history lovers featuring surprising stories about the past, Rediscovered. Or try Cape Up with Jonathan Capehart, where Jonathan brings you the voices you need to hear on the topics you try to avoid. You can find these shows anywhere you listen to podcasts and learn more online at WashingtonPost.com slash podcasts. The Washington 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 Post. Post.